Bloody Elbow presents the Hey Not The Face podcast, the show that brings you the business side of combat sports, including contract review, financial analysis, fighter pay issues, and more. Hey Bloody Elbow podcast Substack subscribers will hear bonus content if available at the end of the broadcast. Be sure to subscribe at bloodyelbow.substack.com for our newsletter and at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com for our podcast network. Follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloodyelbowblog, and as always, on bloodyelbow.com. Thanks for listening. Here's your host, John S. Nash, joined by his producer, Steffi Haynes. Hello and welcome to Hey, Not the Face with your host, John Nash, and your producer, me, Steffi Haynes. And today we have a hodgepodge episode for you. So questions from every corner of combat sports. But first, John, how the hell are you? Tired. Tired. Just tired. Is it sweeps week? Yeah, that's been sweeps, and I, I got I got this cat here who's found new ways to wake me up to feed her in the middle of the night. She she nibbles my elbows and knees. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I have no idea where she got that idea, but it works because I can't sleep if someone's biting my knee. <laughs> you love that cat. Just admit it. I do. She's a good piece. She's all I got left, so he's still good. So. Aww. Well, let's... Yeah, it's not actually all you have left because you have questions here, so okay. you're never alone. <laughs> yes, that would be I'll appreciate that. So we are just coming off of UFC 293, and Sean Strickland upset the apple cart, upset the proverbial favorite in Israel Adesanya, and he did it, wow, he did it very emphatically. And one of the things that he said in the post-fight presser, they asked him who he would like to fight next and what the time frame would be because he typically fights a lot. He has a heavy schedule. And will he continue with his heavy schedule into his, you know, the holding of this belt? And he answered, you know, it doesn't matter who I call out or when I want to fight, the UFC says who I fight and when. Could you break that down a little bit for us and remind everyone once again about pay-per-view points and how Sean Strickland got none? Well, typically, we'll start with the pay-per-view points. Typically, typically a fighter, um, most fighter contracts, they get no pay-per-view points. Usually when you get to the top of a, when you get to that challenger status or a, a champion status, you get a contract and it'll give you cha- uh, pay-per-view points, but it's almost limited to the champion. You have to defend the belt to get the points. Now, there's a few former champions and big stars, you know, Conor McGregor, Nate Diaz when he headlines events. Those guys get pay-per-view points no matter what. Uh, George St. Pierre when he challenged Bisbee got pay-per-view points. But those are rare, very rare. In fact, they're cited in the antitrust cases, very rare exceptions. For the most part, the only people that get pay-per-view points is a champion defending the the title. So Strickland, as a as a challenger, probably got the typical boost and pay to four or five hundred thousand dollars flat fee and no pay-per-view points. Now they might have given him a discretionary bonus for winning, but nothing guaranteed on that front. So that's typical. Uh, regarding, you know, the UFC says when they fight, that's what fans kind of like about the UFC. That's it seems to be one of the number one, 
the the number one when fans cite what's great about MMA or UFC compared to boxing, that's one of the top things they cite is the UFC dictates the fights, and um, you know, and technically the fighter can turn down any fight, right? You need a you need a bout agreement, so a fighter has to accept a fight, but. The UFC's leverage is so great, their contract says if you turn on the fight, they just keep extending your contract till you accept the fight that they want you to fight. So the UFC, they get to, as the promoter, they get the right to pick who you're going to fight, when you're going to fight, where you're going to fight, uh, including a different country. You don't, that's in the contract. You have no say if you're going to fight out in the U.S. or outside the U.S. Uh, you have your contract sets, how much you're going to get paid for that bout. Everything is basically determined by the UFC. Uh, in comparison, if we go to boxing, uh, if you're a, if you're a champion like Tyson Fury, Tyson Fury chose to fight in Ghana, right? That was his decision. His promoter, his promoter or the sanction organizations had no say in that particular fight. He got to pick an opponent that gave him the most money. Now the sanctioning organizations, if he's a champion, they can say, you have to defend your belt against this person. That's a mandatory but the same organizations can't actually force you to fight that person. They can just take the belt away if you refuse it. Where in the UFC case, I mean, we saw it with uh, we saw it with Nate Diaz. They kept putting up Chimaev as his opponent, and he kept turning down. They kept extending the contract to eventually said, "Okay, I'll fight the guy." Now he lucked out that he missed weight, but if they want to, they can they can almost compel you to fight fight whoever they want you to fight. And they can they can also say we're you know if you don't want to defend the belt against someone they they can come up with interim belts and make can make you be the champion even if you don't want to they did that with you know Randy Couture so uh, in many ways MMA UFC is kind of a feudal system which fans like is that the fighters again they have you know they're not paid too much so they're hungry and they they get to tell they get told when where who how to fight and they do it. For those that might be tuning in for the very first time, please break down the difference in a discretionary bonus and a side letter. Okay. So discretionary bonus, there's there's actually several types of payments for fighters. So if you're if you're not familiar with this, the UFC has a system where they pay fighters. The the typical pay that everybody's usually aware of is your your guaranteed show money, we call it, but it's your guaranteed purse. That's the money you get to show up and fight. You know, when you're starting fighter in the UFC, 10 and 10, 10,000 to show up. Um, it could be up to 50, 100, 500,000, you know, whatever to show up and fight. Then there's the win bonus. Most fighters have a win bonus. You win the fight, you get additional payment, usually the same as your guaranteed amount, your purse amount. So if you're 10 and 10 to show up, that means you show up, you get your automatic 10,000. If you win, you get another 10,000. And then they have a couple payments on top of it. One is a pay-per-view bonus. For every buy that this, the, for every pay-per-view they that someone buys, they call it a buy, that every home pay-per-view, not, not commercial, not bars, the fighters get no cut of the bars. But at, at every home that someone buys a pay-per-view and that pay-per-view outside the U.S. is above a certain, uh, a certain amount, that fighter will get paid an, a certain, you'll get a certain amount based on their contract. Typically how it works is the standard contract has may have changed since then, but the standard up to very recently was the first 200,000 buys, the fighter got nothing from 200,001 to 400,000. They got a dollar from 400,000 to 600,000. They got $2 and everything over 600,000. They got $2 and 50 cents. So, you know, it's, it's, it's extra money, but if you, if, 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 uh, O'Malley is correct in what he said about how many pay-per-views his event sold, like 570,000. 
Well, that means that uh, that means that uh, a Sterling, Aljamain Sterling, got an extra five hundred forty thousand dollars on top of his pay. So that's the pay per view bonus. And then on top of it, there's something called a side letter. And a side letter is an agreement that's attached to the regular contract, additional payment. It's a letter of agreement. So uh, a famous one is, I think it was uh, Anderson Silva had a side letter. He got his regular payment as the champ of $600,000 to show, $200,000 additional if he won. He had a side letter when he was fighting that paid him anywhere from two and a half to $3 million as the champion. Uh, and then pay-per-view points would kick in at a higher amount. So there's several fighters who have these side letter agreements that pay them much higher. But again, we know from the antitrust suit, it's a very small percentage. Only a couple percentage of all the fighters have these side letters. And usually the side letters, too, are not. Anderson Silva's agreement is massive. Brock Lesnar, I think, for UFC 200 had a $5.5 million side letter. So he made $8 million total for that event. 2.5 was reported, 5.5 additional. And then there's some fighters that uh, Akiyama, uh, Sexyama, had a $50,000 side letter, I believe. So it, it fluctuates the, the range of the they can pay. And then the final thing is they can give you a discretionary bonus, not just the discretionary includes the fight of the night, you know, the fight of the uh, the performance of the night used to be the knockout submission. That's the first discretionary. But just the UFC decides we are going to give you a bonus that is you have n- nothing written in paper, nothing contractual. We are just going to send you a check off in a couple of weeks after the event because we're, you know, so happy with your event and one of the biggest ever we know from, we know from the antitrust lawsuit that probably the largest discretionary bonus ever gave was to Conor McGregor over 2.7 million for a UFC 190 189 wow okay you said something in there that caught my attention you said they don't get a cut of what bars pay and that interests me a great deal first of all i'd like to know what do bars pay for for a UFC? Well, they pay they can pay up to several thousand. It's based on the occupancy of the bar. They Joe Han will go to the bar or have some go and they'll check in how many people can hold, and then they have a fee based on that. I think they average they average oh, in in Australia. I remember off the top of my head, they average like close to a thousand dollars per bar is their fee. In the U.S., it's slightly more. But they could have several thousand bars showing an event, right? So they have they can I think on average in the past they were collecting uh was it 40, 50 million a year on their on their commercial pay-per-views, which are bars, which are also theaters that they show it. That's a lot of money. That's like several million per pay-per-view that they're collecting on those events. And so uh if you have like a like a boxing match, in fact, Nate Diaz will do the recent Nate Diaz fight, him versus Jake Paul. Those guys, because they kind of promoted it themselves, they had the entity, and the, the same with, you know, even though they weren't the promoters, the same with Spence versus Crawford, is all the money, they get a piece of all that stuff. So that's all on the table. The, all the sponsorships on the table for them, the pay-per-view revenue, the foreign markets, but also the commercial bars, they get a piece where the UFC, they don't, they pay you your, your sum amount of money, they'll pay you a bonus for pay-per-view. But the gate, the ticket sales are generally off limits to fighters. The the commercial pay-per-views off limits. So uh, the sponsorships definitely off limits. Now, especially nowadays, uh, international television deals are off limits, except for the pay-per-view buys when you can get a piece of those. So a huge portion of the revenue streams, the fighters and MMA UFC don't get to touch. And uh, commercial pay-per-view is one of the things that UFC protects for themselves. 
Last question about Sean Strickland. I'm going to ask you to put on your opinion hat right now and give your honest take on Sean Strickland's ability to sell pay-per-views. You know, I, I, it's hard for me to say. I do think there there is a fan base in the UFC we've seen for the, that like Sean Strickland. There's a group of fans. I think he has some appeal to some fans, but he's also anti-charisma to others. I mean, it's, it's kind of like Colby Covington, where there's some people that are drawn in and some people are actually repulsed by him. Also, there's just the appearance. He just, because he lost so badly to Alex Pereira recently uh, and the way he fights sometimes, I think that a lot of people just write him off as not a good fighter. He's, he's probably better than I label him, but he, he doesn't strike you as the best middleweight in the world right now, right? I think, in fact, he's, he's the underdog versus a lot of different opponents. So that'll probably hurt him. But I, I have a feeling on pay-per-view sales domestically, he will be an adequate pay-per-view attraction where it hurts for them as Adesanya sold a ton in Australia and New Zealand, which are pay-per-view markets. I don't see Strickland selling pay-per-views outside the U.S. US at, at all. So he might do okay in the U.S. on pay-per-view. When I, when I say okay, a couple hundred, enough that that uh, ESPN doesn't think they're losing money on the deal. But I don't see him being a major draw, and he doesn't help you in the foreign markets. All right. So let's move on to antitrust updates because since our – uh, last few episodes, a lot has happened. So the first thing I want to ask you is pertinent dates that we need to know about the antitrust trial. Well, I guess the pertinent date is the judges set the trial date, and that date is going to be April 8th of next year. Uh, that all depends on what happens with the appeal that the, the defendants, Zupa, the UFC filed. Uh, the defendants, the judge, people are not aware. The judge granted class certification after years of waiting. In other words, he made it a class action because class action is considered such a big uh, a hurdle. And because the potential damages are so great, usually there's a settlement after class action. So they leave open to appeal this. So the, the, the defendants filed a, note, a petition with the Ninth Circuit, the upper court, the next court, that they want to appeal this. And they laid out their reasoning for why they want to appeal it. Uh, the U.S. Chamber of Common Commerce wrote an amicus brief in support of it. Then the uh, the plaintiffs, the the fighters, they filed their reply response to the UFC uh, attorneys, uh, their their petition for appeal. And so now we have to wait within before the end of the year because on the calendar, the the Ninth Circuit should review the case. I shouldn't say they re should review the whole case. That's misleading. They should they should look over the petition, and we will know if they're going to review the case next year. In other words, where they're going to they're going to accept the appeal and have a briefs and everything next year to determine if the ruling is correct. But we could also learn that they reject it, and if they reject it, that means we go into trial next year uh, on April eighth. Now, usually they reject about eighty percent of all appeals uh, requests, so the odds are there statistically is that the UFC's appeal will be rejected. But there are some kind of novel, interesting things in this case and the, you know, the Chamber of Commerce bringing it up. And so there, there's a chance, I think probably greater than the 20 percent chance typically that the appeals court will look at it. But I, I have no I'm, I'm right now calling it basically a coin toss. You know, per, I have no honest inside information, but I just based on the percentage, based on the novel um uh, Findings of the judge, the the novel nature of the case, and the and the lack, the low percentage of uh, acceptance by the Ninth Circuit. I come to a 50-50. 
And so we'll know by the end of the year if we're going to go into trial next year. If we do, then the trial starts April 8th, and that's a pretty quick turnaround. Can you tell us the ba- the main basis of the UFC's appeal? Well, they're appealing on several fronts. So the main basis is one is they're arguing that the that the use of wage share is not proper uh, by the by first the plaintiffs and that the judge accepting wage share is not proper. In other words, when you measure damages in an antitrust and, and damages to a class, you should look just at wage level. Did your wages go up or down? Were they suppressed or not? And here they're using wage share. What percentage of the revenue are the fighters getting, right? And so they're arguing that's not proper because that's just never really used. Um, and there's some arguments back and forth. Has it ever been used in antitrust cases or class actions or or in academia? It's in academics it is, but does it cross over to the legal world? So that's one. Two, they're also arguing they cannot prove that the, the damages are widespread amongst all the individuals. In other words, that the that the the abuses the abuses of the UFC affected all the fighters the same that they they're not there's not a commonality between them all so that's another thing they're accusing them uh they also accused they're also brought up the fact that the Hal Singer another case that the legal expert for the plaintiffs Hal Singer is being reviewed by the Ninth Circuit but that case got settled so that probably is not going to be brought up uh be looked at by the Ninth Circuit because that's no longer that that case no longer has any standing and so that's the that's the primary things. And the other thing they're bringing up is they think that the use of wage share will open the floodgates to a ton of lawsuits, uh, damage requests from other lawsuits because it's it's such a it, it makes it so much easier for them. They're claiming that the file antitrust you know lawsuits. I kind of agree with the plaintiffs on this is that it's misleading because everybody along the way, the judge and the plaintiffs, made it clear this is a narrow finding. That wage share really should only be used in specific type of jobs like athletes where they're the product and it shouldn't apply to regular uh, wage cases, anti, you know, monopsony cases. So I, I'm not a big – I don't think that's strong. But it, but the potential there, I think they bring it because it raises such eyebrows it might get them to Ninth Circuit to look at it. But that's their major, major arguments why it should be appealed. All right, so let's move on into our next topic, which is Francis Ngannou, Tyson Fury. Now, in a recent uh, clip that I saw just this past week, Tyson Fury mentioned that he had helped get Francis Ngannou a $10 million purse to fight him. Now, that's all fine and good, but I was wondering what Francis Ngannou might be able to expect or what we might be able to expect Francis Ngannou to get as far as the pay-per-view split, anything from the concessions, anything from the gate. Could you give us uh, your, again, opinion hat on? Uh, could you give us your opinion on how that part will shake out? And if you agree with Tyson Fury's $10 million number. Well, I, I think the ten million is probably a little low. I think it's a little higher than ten million. It just—I think he was just saying that as a number, a large number to bring interest. But my understanding is Ghana is probably going to get more than that. Uh, I, for the split with the pay-per-view, it's also my understanding is that the most of this is guaranteed. There's not much in the way of a split because they're getting a large upfront guarantee uh, to cover. Because I guess the expectation is because it's in Saudi Arabia. Because of the time it's playing, whatever it might not, it it they, they expect it to do well on pay per view, but maybe not gangbusters. There is some upside apparently for Ngannou, but it's not. 
I don't know at what point it kicks in or how much the split is, but uh, you know, these are all just loose things you hear and you pick up. So who knows for sure? But I, I'm pretty confident he's going to get more than 10 million. You hear people throw out like 30, 40 million. I don't think I, I think I've said before. I think it's just going to be under like 20 million or just under 20 million. I'm going to stick to that is my est- guesstimate. And if it does gangbusters, then yes, he'll he'll make some extra money. But uh, I think the Saudis are going to want to recruit their investment first. Okay. Speaking of the Saudis, PFL just sold a minority stake in their promotion uh, to a Saudi company. And I believe the the number was $100 million. Could you uh, give us the details on that, please? Well, the Saudis have a, a they bought a portion the an entity they have a sports company they bought bought a portion of the uh, of the PFL invested a hundred million dollars of capital in them they didn't say what percentage of the PFL they're getting PFL apparently was value uh, the valuation the PFL themselves have now given themselves is around supposedly over a billion so you're guessing it's about ten percent for that hundred million <laughs> wait what. That's the valuation. Again, one championship was getting investment money at a valuation at a billion at the end, right? <laughs> so, uh, and of course, one championship hasn't, we haven't heard much of any new money coming in. So, and they're not making the big splash they did before. So, you have to wonder how much of the money they burned through. PFL, though, is kind of in the same boat in the sense that they burn through a lot of cash. They're, they are burning through more cash than they make. And so, they need more cash. The hundred million Saudi investment, you know, that's part of it. Probably is that they're they're happy to have the investment, but I also there's commitment by Saudi Arabia apparently to put a, a super events in Saudi Arabia, so maybe they're they're getting site fees and some other other income revenue from that, which would be big for the PFL. But a uh, hundred million, it sounds like a lot, but the again the the, the burn rate of PFL has got to be in the fifty to seventy five million dollar yeah. range right now until they get a better TV deal. Or start selling pay-per-views, and so that that money is helpful. It is. It's not. Uh, it's. It doesn't. It's not going to last long unless again they start bringing in revenue. Good lord, that's an expiration date like cheese. You know, yeah. you don't have very long at all on that. Yeah. Well, they've raised over three hundred million now. So, but again, it's the burn rate that stuff mm-hmm. does not. They keep. You know, they add in guy for Ganu fights. And they can't sell pay-per-views that they have. Jake Paul fight, or let's say Jake Paul and uh, Nate Diaz fight, and it does not do well, then they burn through a lot of money the, on the guarantee those guys are going to be asking for. And, and well, you have to get Nate Diaz to sign first. And yeah, that's the thing. And yeah. what are you going to give him to sign? It's going to take. I'm sure it's going to take at least ten million plus a big percentage of the sales. Plus, you know, he's going to ask for a lot. And when you don't have many other options, you're going to have to you're going to have to give it to him. Yeah, because they're going to have to compete with the UFC. Hanging out Conor McGregor trilogy, and they're gonna want that because that'll make a lot of money, and they might outbid PFL, right? Well, I mean, UFC is probably not gonna outbid them in the sense like a percentage. Like you know, if we go to the boxing deal again, like someone says, we're gonna give you sixty percent of all the revenue. UFC is never gonna do that, right? But they can if they can hey, they can if they can wave a McGregor fight out, and they know that McGregor fight's gonna sell one point five million pay per views. And they know it's going to outsell three, four times as many as any other Jake, you know, Nate Diaz fight, let's say. Well, then they can they can offer a comparative purse 
right. uh, at a much lower percentage of the revenue, but it's comparative level of pay. So yeah, I, I know that DS Camp, they've talked openly. They're, they're, they've been in talks or expecting an offer for the Conor McGregor fight, and they know that they, they have some leverage to, to get as much as possible. My question is if, if Nate Diaz gets a great deal to come back and fight Conor McGregor, what's Conor McGregor going to say? Right. <laughs> you know, he's not going to want to be, you know, uh, on par, someone making as much or as close to what he's making. Right. All right. So we're going to move on one more time here. And we're going to talk about the Spectrum Disney fallout because I got a text yesterday. It was either yesterday or the day before from them. And it says... Since Disney has removed their channels, we would like to offer you a free trial from our preferred streaming TV partner, Fubo. So I would like to know if the UFC will experience any impact, any kind of fallout from this whole Spectrum Disney kerfuffle. To access the bonus content of this show, you must be a paid subscriber. To do that, go to bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com and subscribe today. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Podcast production. Subscribe at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com. Give us your email and receive notifications when your favorite shows drop straight into your inbox. We're also found on a wide variety of podcast outlets. Just search for Bloody Elbow Podcasts and you will get new shows throughout the week, including the MMA Bunker and MMA Tete-a-Tete shows with Kid Nate, the Level Change Podcast, the Hey Not the Face Podcast, the MMA Vivisection Main Card and Prelims UFC Preview Shows, the Sixth Round Post Fight Show, the Show Money Podcast, and the MMA Depressed Us.